0: Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, Uh, every person on earth has a strong desire to be free. And this desire expresses itself uh, so strongly that countless songs have been written about freedom. I did a quick internet search, revealed a long list of song titles involving uh, freedom or or I'm free. Here's only a few that I came across. Uh, Three by three different artists were named Freedom there was, I want to break free. There was born free, uh, free as a bird, uh, I'm free, songs of freedom. Uh, you get the point. Freedom, freedom, freedom. It would not be hard to add to that list. So there's lots of people singing about freedom, desiring freedom. But the catch is this. The type of freedom people desire course, varies greatly. Some focus on political freedom. Others want what's called moral freedom, the freedom to do whatever you want, although that's not really freedom, as we're going to see later on. But there's a freedom that many people miss out on. It's a freedom we want to understand, embrace, and rejoice in as God's children. It's the greatest freedoms we could ever have. It's the freedoms we're given through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is what we're going to be focusing on this afternoon. So that brings us to the sermon theme, which is this. In the death of Jesus Christ, we find glorious freedom. We're going to see uh, three types of freedom this afternoon. We find freedom from, first of all, the grave. Second of all, freedom from slavery to sin. And finally, freedom from the punishment of hell. So first of all, we find freedom from the grave. In Psalm 139, King David gives glory to God with these words. He says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. David looked at how intricately God had made the human body, and when he saw God's wisdom displayed there, he couldn't help but praise the Lord. We should do that too. God has created the human body so well. And take a step back, look at the different things, uh, things like eyesight and, and hearing. You can't help but think, you know, this is so amazing what God has made and how, how, how well it fits together and works together. We often don't even think about it. God has given us the ability to do incredible things, to use our bodies in wonderful ways. And because we are bodily creatures, it's natural for us to want to preserve our bodies. No one likes getting sick, suffering pain and discomfort. If you get injured, you can't wait to be fully recovered. No one wants to see their bodies being broken down. And our strong innate desire to preserve our bodies is especially seen in our aversion to death. It's because death, indeed viewed only in itself, is certainly scary. There's no getting out of death, certainly not on our own. There's no reversing it, certainly not by our power. Death takes away life, and once it does, that's it. It's no wonder then that some today are trying to see if humans can gain some form of immortality in this world. Or in the very least, to see if human lifespans can be expanded greatly. And who knows, maybe we will be able to in the future. Maybe with some kind of gene therapy, we'll be able to restore our health and youth uh, on um, indefinitely, perpetually. People lived 900-plus years before the flood. Maybe that can happen in the future. You don't know. But even if this is accomplished, humans will never tr- uh, find true immortality in that way. Death will still come in the end. Besides, Living that long also means seeing sin and more and more sin and sadness in this life. So it's clear we need something better. And that something better is, of course, provided by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself died. and He was buried. And through these things, and also his resurrection... He has transformed death and the grave for believers. How did he do that? Well, he did this by making satisfaction for our sins, satisfying God's justice against our sins. As it says in Lord's Day 16, why was it necessary for Christ to, to humble himself even unto death? The answer, because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins can be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. You see, it's sin that at the end of the day makes death so horrible. It's sin that makes death permanent. You could think of the relationship between sin and death like that of a fishhook, and a barb The hook is what catches the fish. But it's the barb on that hook that keeps the fish on the hook. It's like that with sin and death, too. Death is what catches us in its grip. that in itself is terrible. But it's sin in us that keeps us in death. Well, the beauty of the death of Christ is that he made satisfaction for our sins and so has removed our sins from us by his blood. And that's why, for believers, death is no longer permanent because Christ has paid for our sins. If I could put it in this way, it's like Christ has removed... The barb from the fishhook of death. See, because of his payment, we can be released from the clutches of death. Don't have to be forever held in its grip. Now, if that's true, the question might then arise. Well, if Christ has made perfect satisfaction for our sins, why isn't death removed altogether for believers? You know, is there some kind of deficiency in Christ's saving work? Or that Christian sins aren't fully taken care of? Or does this mean there is a place like purgatory, where imperfect Christians need to go after death? Well, the answer to these questions is no. The remaining reality of death for believers does not mean in any way our debt of sin is still unpaid, Yes, death remains, and death is an enemy. But look at what we confess in Lord's Day 16. Death is no longer a payment for our sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. Look at at this in terms of our reading from Colossians. Think only of what it says at the beginning of Colossians 3, where it says, "Believers, you have been raised with Christ, and your life is hidden with Christ in God." And so as believers, we're united with Christ, who is now in heaven. That means, yes, a large part of our existence as humans is, of course, on this earth. We are bodily creatures souls, and we live here on the earth, but we are also united to Christ, and so part of our existence is already in heaven now. That is true for every believer. Part of our existence is already in heaven because we are joined to the exalted Christ. And so when believers die, we simply go to the place where we already are in Christ Jesus, which is in heaven at God's right hand. That's why Hebrews 2 can say that Christ has freed us from slavery from the fear of death. He's transformed the grave. That brings us to our second point. Now, freedom from the grave it's not the only freedom we gain through Christ's death. The next freedom is found in question and answer 43. Third it asks, What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, it says, Our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us. But that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. So, in the death of Jesus Christ, we find more freedom. We find freedom from slavery to sin. Now, this, of course, is not a freedom we naturally seek out. Instead, our fallen nature actually seeks the opposite it seeks slavery to sin. And fallen humans are more than willing to engage in this slavery. Now, in a sense, this sounds like a contradiction in terms. You know, a, a willing slave, how could someone be a willing slave? When we usually define someone who is a slave, usually we think of a person who needs to keep doing things against their will. They need to follow the will of somebody else, their master or owner. How then can someone be a willing slave? Sounds like he or she is their own boss doing the things they want to do. And you know what? This is how many people view indulging sinful desires. They feel free. They feel like their own boss. No one is going to tell me what I can or can't do If I want to do it, if it feels good to me, then I'm going to do it. That's what many people, how many people live their lives. And there is a sense in which they are right. That is, it is true that the human will is involved when humans indulge simple desires. A choice is made to follow sin. And so it feels like freedom. But here's the thing we must understand. Yes, humans do freely choose to follow evil desires. It's an act of the will. But fallen humans cannot free themselves from evil desires. Instead, the will of fallen humans is enslaved to evil desires. Let me say that again. Fallen humans cannot free themselves from evil desires. Martin Luther called it the bondage of the will. People feel they are free when they indulge sin. The sad reality is they are enslaved. And here's the other thing we must understand. Following evil desires... Indulging sin, it brings death. It always does. That is the very nature of sin. It brings death and destruction in some way, shape, or form. Rebelling against God cannot but bring some kind of death and destruction. And this is why we can also rejoice in this teaching of Scripture summarized in Lord's Day 16. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Well, it is that our old nature is crucified. It's put to death and buried with Christ. That old person that we once were and controlled everything, has been dealt a death blow in the death of Christ. Look at how the Holy Spirit describes this for us in Colossians 2. Listen, first of all, to verses 11 and 12. In him, that's in Christ, also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. He says, you are circumcised. Of course, not physical circumcision, but a spiritual working of the Holy Spirit in our inner being through the cross of Christ and through our union with Christ in His crucifixion. In Jesus' death, the Holy Spirit cuts away our old sinful nature, our old sinful self called the flesh. So, what does this mean? This means that finally, finally, that old nature with all its enslaving desires is no longer in charge of the life of the believer. Doesn't mean we don't struggle, we do. It's no longer in charge. It continues on in, in verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands as he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So I want to not- you to notice here in these words the double benefit we receive for Jesus' death and resurrection. So, double benefit. The first benefit is this. We receive the forgiveness of our sins, our transgressions. Our record of debt, the charges that were against us for breaking the law, that's been nailed to the cross. And so, the first benefit is a new status we've been given in Christ. The status of forgiven or righteous in Christ. It's all by the work of Christ himself. The second benefit that is tied to the first and goes along with the first is, is this. We have also been made new in our person. We have been given a new spiritual condition. So we're freed from slavery to our old self and our old life of sin. We are freed so that we might serve God. We might serve Him once more. Again, this doesn't mean we will never struggle against sin. Of course not. Certainly we do. Even though our old self has been crucified, it's like a a wretched corpse that still clings to us. And we, by our weakness, uh, still fall to it. Even still, we have to understand this is how we grow as Christians, through being made new in Christ's death. This is how we grow in holiness and obedience. We find the power to obey. We find the power to serve the Lord through Jesus' death and through his resurrection. That's where we are made new. Notice how Colossians 2 describes how spiritual growth does not happen, right? In this passage, it also gives a contrast. It does not happen by self-made religion, adding human rule upon human rule. This is how Paul puts it at the end of that chapter. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world— you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, according to human precepts and teaching. This might sound like the good way to grow as a Christian, right? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, it says, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism that's uh, strictly refraining from all physical delights and comforts has an appearance of wisdom with severity to the body. These sorts of regulations and rules, he says, are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So adding human rule upon human rule to try to make us grow as Christians is not going to work. It doesn't give us the power to obey God from the heart. What does he instruct us instead? Well, he continues on in the same theme in chapter 3. He says, not only have we been crucified with Christ, we've been raised with him from the dead. We've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Right? That's where you have your life, in Christ, in God. And so he says in the rest of Colossians 3, Because this is who you are now in Christ, because this is your very identity, now also live like it. And that means, indeed, putting to death your sin, putting to death the remnants of your old nature, that wretched corpse that still clings to you, that's trying to trip you up. Put it to death. It means putting on new desires and a new way of life that pleases the Lord. That brings us to our last point. Now, Lord's Day 16 ends with this question. Why is there added in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell? The first counter question in our minds might be, what exactly are we confessing when we say that Jesus descended into hell? Did Jesus go to the physical place we refer to as hell? Well, good question. Now, also added to this, each of the statements about Christ's life in the Apostles' Creed before this statement are in a chronological fashion. That is, they follow the history and timeline of of Jesus' life. First, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Next, he was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, etc. Because of that, we might think the statement about Jesus' descending into hell continues on that timeline. And So, the thinking might exist in our minds. Well, this must mean Jesus descended into hell after he died. And after, he was buried. However, that's the wrong thinking. That's not what we should think of when we confess Jesus descended into hell. It's best to think of this as a summary statement of Christ's sufferings. That in each of those things, where he was conceived and born and suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified... Christ descended deeper and deeper into the suffering of the hellish agony he needed to go through in order to pay for our sins. This is something Lord's Day 15 talked about as well. During all the time Christ lived on earth, but especially at the end, right, it grew deeper and deeper into that hellish agony of of the curse, he bore in his body and soul the wrath of God against our sins. And what is the significance of Christ doing this for us? What's the good news here? Well, the answer in our confession is so beautiful. Listen, listen to these words again. In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ... By his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. How wonderful that is. Christ Jesus, our Lord, has forever freed us who believe in him from the punishment of hell. That's got to be the best news there is hell is never ending judgment hell is what we deserve and hell is where we were headed scripture describes in numerous places some of the stark realities of hell there's sometimes there are descriptions foreshadowed in the old testament think of zephaniah 1 The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and destruction, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. It's one picture from the Old Testament. What about these words from 2 Thessalonians 1. When Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Remember, this should have been us. And it surely would have been if it were not for the sacrificial, self-denying, completely gracious love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But now, through the death of Christ, we get to exchange the agony of hell for the glory and joy of heaven. And this is one of the high points of the gospel message and of, of all the Bible. This is why Jesus suffered as he did so that we might be saved from hell's torments. This is what Scripture means when it says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities so that he might do this, this is what the Bible means when it says upon him was a chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. This is what Scripture means, that Jesus' sacrifice is a sacrifice of propitiation, turning aside the wrath of God from believers. This is what it means so when Scripture says that Jesus Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we wouldn't have to. This is what it means when it says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what Scripture is talking about when it says Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. Jesus Christ suffered and died in your place, so that you could exchange the terror of hell for the joy of heaven. In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ has delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. I may be assured and comforted, we confess here. How do we find that assurance Well, we go to God's promises in Scripture. That is upon which our faith is based. Think only of our reading from Colossians. It says there, God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, as he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Again, that record of debt, it's like that written charges against us with its legal demands meaning uh, this person needs to be punished for the things they have done. It's like a collection agency coming after someone because they're officially in debt and payment needs to be made. And if the debt is not paid, the person will suffer the consequences. And we were liable to the most severe punishment of all because of that record of debt to God. Look at what God did. He took that record of debt, the one that also proclaimed this person needs to be punished, and He nailed it to the cross. And there it remains. The debt has been canceled, taken care of. And notice what it says next in, in Colossians. God disarmed, he made, made them powerless, the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that is, in Jesus, or even in it, in the cross. Right? God disarmed Satan and his demons in their attacks of us. They, they held us, right, because of our sin and rebellion. But Satan no longer has any claim on our life because of the cross of Christ, cross has taken his power away from us. The record of debt has been nailed to the cross and so we belong to a new master, to our Lord Jesus. This is why Colossians 3 can then say, You have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life appears, then you also We'll appear with him in glory. Right? You've exchanged in Christ the agony of hell for the glory of heaven. When Christ appears, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Rejoice and praise God for this glorious grace. Amen.